lecture ten part two of the groundwork of the christian virtues by william bernard ullathorne this librivox recording is in the public domain lecture ten on the magnanimous character of humility part two the first faults of those whose chief aim in life is to love and serve god are commonly surprises and results of weakness and infirmity without anything in them of deliberate malice they are consequently venial or pardonable and every generous act is effacing them the council of trent teaches that there is not even an obligation of confessing them although that is commendable because they are constantly being effaced by every pious act and good work the worst evil in those of whom we speak is not their first but the second committed upon the first in making a trouble about it taking it to the bosom of self-love there nursing it and making much of it and murmuring over it with the murmurs of mortified pride this kind of nursing is very weakening to the spiritual constitution it is accompanied with a constant imbibing of mistrust and draws hope away from the soul as well as courage it comes of fixing our eyes upon ourselves rather than on god and of sinking our hearts into our infirmities rather than lifting them up to the divine source of help and strength not so did the magnanimous psalmist manage the weakness of his soul he says i have lifted up my eyes to the mountains from whence help shall come to me my help is from the lord who made heaven and earth psalm one hundred twenty verses one and two and repeatedly in other psalms he says to thee o lord have i lifted up my soul in thee o god i put my trust let me not be ashamed psalm twenty four verse one when we lift up our hearts out of ourselves to god and keep them lifted up these self-made miseries drop off for want of nutriment there are two children in one family of whom the one is weak and impulsive and often committing faults but this child is open cheerful self-forgetting and always trusting to his father's love and forgiveness even though punished for his faults the other commits fewer faults but is morose and fretful over his failures mopes in the fancy that they are still remembered and unforgiven however assured to the contrary and still goes on curling himself up round his wounded self-love which of these children will the father love most assuredly the one who trusts in his father's love and forgiveness so will your heavenly father do to you there is another kind of pusillanimity to which women are more liable than men i can only describe it as a want of courage to stand on their own spiritual feet they remind one of dolls they have neither nerve nor strength of joint to keep themselves up without external support and this nerveless habit grows with indulgence in grave difficulties and trials advice and direction must of course be sought of these i am not speaking but there is a class of persons that have a real desire of the better things 
yet are always in a relaxed and helpless state of soul because they give up the habit of acting from themselves and of using their own judgment this is the vice of softness the result of the habit is a weakness and flaccidity of soul that will not take the least step or encounter the least difficulty without external help and guidance this defect of spiritual vigour stays all solid progress and causes an habitual timidity and uneasiness that is very injurious to the soul's health leaving the languor of an invalid yet these same persons who through this self-indulgence but too often fostered by injudicious treatment become utterly incapable of acting with decision in their internal affairs will often act with vigour judgment and decision in all the external duties of life some few souls are by nature and constitution scrupulous and perplexed and require frequent though judicious help but in the majority of cases this pusillanimous indulgence is a serious enfeeblement that can only be corrected by requiring the soft soul to rise to her responsibilities and stand on her own feet softness is a vice that in a foolish and disheartened spirit holds back from being generous through languor and weariness of soul arising from fear of the difficulties and long labours of generous virtue self-love cowardice and sloth have each their share in this ignominious vice imagination has also much to do with it bringing together into one point of time and so frightening the soul with what in fact is distributed over a long period each hour of which has its own help and grace as well as its own burden and thus overwhelming the mind with a delusion as if the whole burden of the future came on the present hour and the present help presumption is an excess arising from overestimating our own powers and from attempting in a conceited spirit things that are above and beyond us because god has not called us to them nor given us light and strength for them ambition is an inordinate appetite for exercising power over others and for being honoured by others vainglory is an inordinate appetite for praise fame and glory these are the puffings of an inflated soul preferring the show of things to solid good after this rapid review of the vices opposed to magnanimity or greatness of soul if we compare them with the solid goods of the soul we shall see at a glance that they are weak and ignoble deficiencies or else unworthy passions of the soul requiring only to be noted to be shunned as unworthy of the generous soul wherefore in the words of dante we will not stay to reason upon them but look and pass them by as a universal virtue magnanimity is the brave and generous element in all the virtues in so far as the soul aspires to great things st thomas has drawn the features of magnanimity and humility as they are special virtues and so distinguished from each other but he by no means excludes the one from the other 
for every christian virtue as he teaches has its foundation in humility and there cannot be great humility without magnanimity there is something he says that is great in man which he possesses from god and there is a defect in him that comes from the infirmity of his nature but magnanimity is that whereby a man makes himself worthy in great things in consideration of the gifts that he possesses from god thus if he have great vigour of soul magnanimity will direct that vigour to the perfect works of virtue and in like manner to the use of every good to the use of knowledge for example or of the external goods of fortune but humility will dispose a man to hold himself of little account because of his defects in like manner will the magnanimous man despise every great failing from the gifts of god in others because he cannot so much value those who do what is unworthy of them but the humble man honours others and accounts them superior in so far as he sees the gifts of god in them here christian magnanimity is shown to coincide with humility in despising that within us which is unworthy of the gifts of god great generosity gives to every virtue the quality of magnanimity because generosity proceeds from greatness of soul great in aiming to please god and to do him honour but generosity is not exercised in the imagination alone that is idle fancy nor in shortcoming resolutions and promises but in vigorous acts of the will and in doing what we undertake with a great spirit the other part of magnanimity is to trust ourselves freely to god's help in overcoming difficulties it is on this part that magnanimity belongs to fortitude which is a firmness of soul derived from resting on the strength of god that makes the soul of invincible firmness the fable of the giant who could not be conquered on his native earth but only when lifted above it may be taken as the figure of the soul which born of god cannot be overcome until separated from god this part of magnanimity is fortified by habits of endurance as we see in the saints and martyrs but when the adversary to be overcome is the domestic enemy the greatest strength is shown by flight because this pulls contrary to the attractions of nature the special virtue of magnanimity looks to honour for its object and to the doing of great acts that are accounted worthy of honour as also to the shunning of dishonour but as the christian religion is the conversion of man from the love of self and of the world to the love of god and from acting on worldly and selfish motives to acting on divine motives the magnanimity of the true christian seeks not the honour or the approval of man but the honour of god and his approval st thomas has therefore defined the special virtue of christian magnanimity to be a virtue that does great and generous works worthy of honour for the ends contemplated by christian virtue whilst unambitious of receiving human honours on their account 
and despising such honours when offered the reason assigned by st thomas for this contempt of human honours is the one obvious to a christian soul that there can be no proportion between the value of virtues exercised for god's sake and the human honours with which men would reward them when these virtues are honoured and rewarded by god himself to seek or to value human honours for what god himself is pleased to honour would not only be to divide the heart between god and the creature but to detract from that divine and eternal honour by accounting human honours of the least value in its presence as if a rushlight were of any value in the sunlight moreover the principle of the christian virtues is the grace of god with which we are only the cooperators and therefore their chief honour is due to god and not to us the mere natural man without faith or knowledge of himself will attach much greater value to human honours and will seek them with greater avidity than christian truth permits or than such honour deserves but what the true christian looks to above all is the glory of god and the eternal honours and dignities that god alone can give the magnificent objects presented to us in the light of faith are so infinitely superior to the things of this world that before the things of heaven these human honours and rewards shrink to nothing the lofty motives also that are given to the contemplation of the christian soul reduce all earthly motives to vanity the sense of god again always present with us and ever within us attracting and moving us to aspire to his glory ought to give us a great spirit in some degree however humble it may be yet in some degree worthy of the great things to which we are called but it is on the contempt of these lesser things which the world values so much that we rise in a spirit greater than the spirit of the world to those greater things above the world god alone is great and it is a great thing to be his servants and still more to be his children great is his love for us and greatly has he shown that love giving us his only beloved son for our redemption and his holy spirit for the sanctification of our hearts great is his power and great are his gifts who redeemeth thy life from destruction who crowneth thee with mercy and compassion it hath also pleased him to give us a kingdom that is far greater than the kingdom of this world who then can doubt but that the servants and friends the sons and daughters of the eternal king ought to have great souls who can hesitate to think or to say that they ought to be ready to do great things for his honour and glory god has taught us great things observes st gregory and has commanded us great things that after doing them he may give us great things even in this life he presents magnificent gifts to those who serve him in a generous spirit such as purity of heart divine consolation firmness under difficulties security in dying and the quick transit to heaven 
he is magnanimous who rudely mortifies his senses giving no more to the body than it needs that the spirit may hold command and be free and the soul filled with good things he is magnanimous who will not let his soul be ruffled by offensive words or violent deeds he is great-minded who has his chief conversation with the eternal truth and justice why should that truth be always near us and we commonly far away unless from our little-mindedness he is great-minded who keeps himself in the divine presence and is never long away from the sense of the eternal god god is always with us why should we not always be with god the great souls of all ages have walked with god not only the great ones of history but many of the poor and unknown who were wise in god though counted for ignorant in this world who were honoured by god though despised by the world soft and pusillanimous souls are too weak to walk steadfastly before god through the pilgrimage of life but the great-souled are subject from their inmost heart to god accounting that nothing can be greater for them than to be in the hands of god to be great-souled is to be full of faith of a faith that so lights up the eternal world to them that the mortal things of this world fade before their eyes like dying flowers the great souled are magnanimous in sacrificing the love of self to the love of god until all their strength flows into charity happy are they who are released from bondage to themselves that they may be large and free in the generous atmosphere of light and grace all that we require is that the soul be open and generous humility opens the soul charity makes her generous put yourself in plato's position to whom even the shadow of christianity was a blank take the position of that heathen philosopher at the moment when he declared to alcibiades that no one knows what to ask of god until a divine one come to teach him in such a state of mind one might naturally reason in this manner man is evidently in an unsatisfactory state though he dares not look closely into his soul yet he feels that he is not what he ought to be something has gone wrong with him one cannot say what it is but something very serious he longs to be what he should be at least the right-minded man does so but he does not know what he ought to be he therefore knows not what to ask of god for in his ignorance he may ask for what will make him worse instead of better it is evident we are on a wrong line and are going further away from the right line one has only to look into oneself to see that people are dying every day dying with the full consciousness of immortality yet not knowing what is to become of them if the god who made us would only come and tell us what we ought to be it is an audacious thought but who knows the power or the goodness or the condescension of god god is not proud as we are his thoughts are not like ours nor his ways like ours 
we are certainly his children despite our errors yet were he to come could we see or understand him he is the eternal spirit and we are wrapped up in mortal clay it is a stupendous thought but what if god were actually to come as he has so often been imagined in a mortal form and to live with us and to teach us what we are and what we ought to be it is an astounding supposition for mortal men to raise who know so little of god but we should then have with us a perfect man whom we could see to whom we could listen and who being god as well as man would tell us what we are and show us what we ought to be and what he would have us to be oh what an infinite relief would this be to us distracted mortals with our consciousness of immortality well this astounding fact has come to pass for nigh two thousand years the world has known the son of god in human nature the great event was prepared from the beginning of the world the rumour of its approach grew into expectation and he came yet when he came the world knew him not the world had its own great men sages and heroes of renown whose chief virtue was their magnanimity and the world expected that a perfect man would be a hero and a sage of its own type completing its own ideal of a perfectly magnanimous man as drawn by plato aristotle and cicero christ jesus was the perfect man in perfect union with god the model of manhood to all men most perfect in magnanimity as in all the virtues yet the world could not understand him so very different is the divine from the human view of magnanimity for the perfect man was wholly turned to god whilst the great man of the world was wholly turned to the affairs of this mortal life the perfect man was wholly subject to god whilst the great man of the world was chiefly ambitious of dominion over his fellow-men the perfect man denied himself the honours of the world and the gratification of himself whilst the great man of the world made its honours the chief end of his life and the gratification of his pride his main pursuit the perfect man was humble and his life hidden with god the great man of the world rises in the spirit of self-elation and self-reliance to subject to his rule the children of pride the perfect man did nothing of himself but looked in all that he said and did to the will and wisdom of god his father but the great man of the world stepped forth with unbounded confidence in himself and in his own wit and wisdom the perfect man looked above all to the perfect end of man and sought to draw all men to their perfect end but the great man of the world only sought a deathless fame among perishing mortals like himself the perfect man built upon eternity and his works are glorified eternally but the great man of the world built on himself and his work could not endure such is the contrast between the magnanimous man of the world and the magnanimous man of god 
that the first principles of the man of the world are completely reversed in the first principles of the man of god the one rests everything on himself uses everything for himself and draws everything to himself the other rests everything on god obtains everything from god and draws everything to god the difference between the interior states of these two men is so absolute as to establish a fundamental opposition in their thoughts their desires and their actions and to such an extent that st paul calls the one darkness and the other light to the converted heathens he says ye were darkness but now light in the lord ephesians chapter five verse eight in nothing is this fundamental difference more strikingly shown than in the different way in which the virtue of magnanimity is understood and exercised which entirely depends on the view taken of what constitutes true greatness of soul but as the true greatness of the soul is not in herself except in capacity but arises from the truth and the good which god communicates to her nature it is obvious that the heathen's notion of the soul's greatness as derived from herself and from her own native resources is utterly false and that it gives a false foundation to the virtue of magnanimity christ gives it its true foundation in resting it upon the humility of the man dependent in all things on the divine communications of god this foundation rests in the truth and justice of things and gives the soundness of justice to all that is built upon it it is impossible therefore to express these two kinds of magnanimity under one name without adding some specific terms of distinction to things so opposite in their nature and we must call the one heathen magnanimity and the other christian magnanimity for although some few catholic writers have gone so far as to maintain that the magnanimity of the heathen is the humility of the christian the question will not stand a moment's examination for the exposition of magnanimity by aristotle shows clearly that it rested on pride and self-sufficiency when the learned though eccentric Raynotus urged the point in a dry dissertation by inserting the contrary arguments of lesius he unconsciously refuted himself the pagan celsus maintained that the christians had stolen their humility from plato but by his admiration of plato and his loathing of christian humility he contradicted his own statement cajetan the great commentator on st thomas declares that the notion of any identity between heathen magnanimity and christian humility is a new fantasy a novelty undiscovered by all past doctors to be exterminated from the precincts of the church and of moral philosophy although both heathen and christian magnanimity aim at making the soul great and that by seeking great things and despising little things there is an immeasurable distance between them which is still visible in the man of the world as compared with the servant of christ that distance will be discovered in the answer to the two questions 
what are the great things that make a man great-souled and what are the little things that make a man little-souled the things of this world are certainly little in comparison with god to be honoured by this world is little in comparison with being honoured by god time is little in comparison with eternity man himself is little in comparison with god the man therefore who prefers himself to god or the things of this world to the things of god or the interests of time to the interests of eternity or the being honoured by men to the being honoured by god is not great souled but little souled such a man is poor in his reason small in his aim and low in his aspirations for even reason teaches that we ought to be subject to god to do his will and not to estimate ourselves above what we are or anything beyond its true value when the heathen thought that he was all-sufficient for himself he first deified himself for his pride led him to pantheism it is evident that the soul is not great in herself but only capable of greatness if the soul were great in herself she would have no occasion to seek for greatness and to seek it with much labour and contention but when men sought for greatness through human opinion and it failed them they could no longer endure themselves an evident proof that the greatness of the man was not in himself it is also evident that the soul is a middle good placed between superior and inferior good and capable of either the one or the other so that the soul becomes great by attaching herself to what is greater than she is and little by attaching herself to what is less than she is in the first case she rises to the virtues in the second she sinks to the vices the soul therefore becomes great good and elevated in proportion to the greatness goodness and elevation of the objects at which she aims and to which she attaches herself if she receives a great truth from god she is greater by all that truth if she receives a great gift of grace and virtue from god and works faithfully with the gift she is greater by all that gift if she has a great sense of god and that sense inspires her with a great love of god she is the greater by all that love which unites her with god by that love the soul aspires to the greatest of all things that can give her excellence she aspires to an eternal union with god and in thus seeking god with her whole mind and heart at whatever cost to herself the soul ascends to the sublimest act of christian magnanimity end of lecture ten part two